today. It's a beautiful Palm Sunday. Why don't we go ahead and pray as we dive into the Word of God this morning. Father, we are thankful for your Word. We're thankful for the events that took place over 2,000 years ago during this week. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday. And Father, I ask that we would understand what these mean to us today. And Lord, how you came into Jerusalem and began this Passion Week. Passion Week meaning the the week of suffering for you. And we ask that you would help us to understand the depth of the suffering that you went through in order to take us to the heights of grace. And so we ask that you would bless this time in your word, and that, Lord, you would enlighten our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Today, Palm Sunday, we'll be in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of this chapter. The title of this message is Christ's Humble Fame. Christ's Humble Fame. You know, something has happened... An idea has kind of grown out of the last 10 years via social media called a position that's very unique to social media called a social media influencer. It's really a new concept that's happened within the last 10 years. Couldn't have happened 100 years ago. Probably will not happen very many years from now. But Alyssa and I watched a PBS documentary, so we, we're, we're kind of, we get an idea what's going on. So basically what happens is that someone on social media creates some kind of content or posts a video on YouTube, writes some very funny tweet on, on Twitter, and it goes viral. And all of a sudden, they, maybe they've been building a following, posting YouTube videos and stuff like that on so, various social media. And all of a sudden, something goes viral, which means you know, it spreads very fast. That's the word we use for the internet. It's, it sounds like a bad thing, but it's a good thing. It spreads really fast. Everyone knows about it. And then you have a YouTube video that has one million views or something like that, and this person's all, all of a sudden skyrocketed into fame. And they're grouped into this kind of nebulous, kind of unclear category called a social media influencer. And as Alyssa and I were watching this PBS documentary on this, because apparently that's how we learn about social media, that the, these people were often our age, in their often early 20s, sometimes they were even children, the age of a child, and they, they got rocketed into fame because of something they posted. And all of a sudden, people want to sponsor them. People want to give them their clothing. People want to, um, to talk about this company, this apparel company, or this skateboarding company, or this makeup company. And all of a sudden, they have this sway in popular discourse. People listen to what they say because of all of a sudden this, this popularity. And they have this say in culture, in movies, they're an influencer. People, people pay attention to what they do. But the problem we, we found out reading or watching this documentary is that a lot of them feel this intense pressure to maintain that. You know, a power, it's, all, it's this power that was easily won, and they fear that it may be easily lost. And so they, they've made it, and they're duty-bound, if you will, with themselves to protect that status in the world. I'm an influencer. I can have a say in public discourse, in politics, and religion, and these things like that. And people are listening to what I have to say all of a sudden. No real 
credentials of their own. They're just popular. And so when we see in um, Palm Sunday that Christ all of a sudden was, seems to have been rocketed into fame, he broke into the market, if you will, of Jerusalem's public society. And yet, what do we see him do? Did he really make it big in this way? And how do we reconcile Jesus all of a sudden becoming very famous on this day and Palm Sunday? And how do we reconcile that with the events that happened at the end of the week? So we're going to take, as you know, we've been taking several weeks to look at the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And today we're going to pause here and kind of carefully study an event called Palm Sunday to remind us that Jesus' death and resurrection did not happen in a vacuum. They weren't independent incidents from the rest of his life. They were, in fact, the goal and the purpose of his entire life. And so Palm Sunday, our goal today is to recognize how Palm Sunday relates to Good Friday, how his seemingly huge fame on this day relates to a shameful death at the end of the week. And so we're to understand what made his entrance into Jerusalem, quote-unquote, successful, what kind of formula he used, maybe, to, to rocket himself into the, the public eye, into fame, and we're to understand how does that work with the rest of the week. Because it seems almost like there was a climax, and then there was a fall to him. But that wasn't really how it happened. So let's, let's start in, in verse 1, as we consider Matthew chapter 21. We see on the verse part, we're just going to read one phrase. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. So we have Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And for Matthew's readers now, if, if we've been reading you know, chapter, Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 21, we would have recognized that this trip to Jerusalem is something that Jesus has been talking about several times. And so when we see Jesus approach to Jerusalem, we should understand that this is a place where he's been talking about himself suffering and dying at the hands of the religious leaders. And so approaching Jerusalem is kind of a difficult situation because you know what is going to come. And so Jesus pauses right here to make special arrangements to enter the city. It's kind of like, you know, Lord of the Rings, Boromir saying, one does not simply enter, you know, Mordor. One does not simply walk into Mordor. So Jesus is almost saying, one does not simply walk into Jerusalem, and he makes these kind of arrangements. And so how does Jesus accomplish this feat? Okay, Jesus, what's your marketing campaign? How are you going to break into this city? How are you going to break into the public life of the city? And Jesus says, I need a donkey. And you're like, what? What is going on here? And look, literally, he's asking for a donkey to ride into the city. Verse 1 says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And so Jesus gives very clear directions to the disciples about this donkey and the colt 
that is with the donkey, down to the details. You know, it's at a very specific place. In Mark's account of this story, we see that Jesus has said, it's going to be tied right near a doorway. Like, he just knew this. Well, he is God, so he would know down to the details. But he also gives the reasons that the owner should hand it over. It's simply because the Lord is in need of them, and the owner should just give them right away. I bet the disciples were thinking, yeah, right, like he's just going to give it because we said, you know, the Lord needs them. But they did. They did, as we will see. So just think, God incarnate, who is eternally and perfectly independent and self-sufficient, came to this earth to be born as a baby, and suddenly has need of something, has need of something that he once created. And so he he knows where the donkey lives, and he knows where to get them. And not only that, Mark's account also says in Mark 11.3 that he fully intends to send the donkey back. So he's just borrowing the donkey. He's taking a one-way trip to Jerusalem, so he won't even have it for long, but he's using it for this specific purpose. And all indications are that the owners will simply, freely hand the donkey over. And now Matthew gets into the the details of why the donkey. Why are we talking about a donkey in this case? And why does our Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, need a donkey for his purposes? Well, it's in verses 4 through 5. We see that this, the, the donkey thing, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Jerusalem, and he's quoting from an Old Testament passage, say to the daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This prophecy is the centerpiece of Jesus' entire entrance into Jerusalem. And without understanding this prophecy, we lose sight of what he was actually accomplishing here. It's a half century, I mean, sorry, it's a half millennium old prophecy from Zechariah. It's recorded in your Bibles in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, it's on the screens, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we get the, the donkey, the colt, we say, check, check. And Matthew probably also intends to reference another passage from the prophet Isaiah who we were studying a few weeks ago and we'll still get back to after this series of messages. But Isaiah in chapter 62, verse 11, says halfway through the verse, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This donkey was a symbol literal donkey, was a symbol of Christ's coming and bringing salvation to his people. So it's not just a donkey. It's a donkey carrying a lot of weight. And this is a prophecy. We might think, oh, you know, that, that prophecy that Zechariah had, you know, maybe it's a, a symbolic donkey, you know, it's, it's something like that. No, it was a literal donkey. And Jesus makes this clear. And so while Matthew, the passage in Matthew doesn't, exactly quote the whole verse in Zechariah 9 and and Isaiah chapter um, 62, we see what Jesus was carrying with him on the donkey, what kind of burden this donkey was bearing. It's our salvation that he carries with him as he rides this donkey. It's the just rewards of the people whom God makes righteous. 
So think about this burden that this donkey had to bear. It conveys our salvation over that small stretch of road into Jerusalem. And so we see this prophecy, we see the plans that Jesus made, and now we see how it plays out as we read the rest of this small section. Verse 6 says that the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They didn't have a problem getting it. And they put on them their cloaks. They didn't even have a saddle for it. And so they sat, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And we'll, we'll stop there. So the crowd, there's some, this crowd that is already there. And we're thinking, what, what, where did the crowd come from? There's, there's this crowd that suddenly formed. But we have to understand that this crowd very likely formed, according to John's account of this story, because of the last miracle that Jesus performed, which was the raising of Lazarus. So people heard about this thing, and they wanted to see Lazarus, and of course they wanted to see the miracle worker. They wanted to see Jesus. And so there, there was this kind of crowd that was roaming around them, and they were there, and they got to see firsthand this event taking place, which is a little bit strange, but they seemed to understand something was going on. They seemed to have a certain idea of what was happening. But as we will see, they didn't exactly see it perfectly. They didn't exactly see what we're intended to see. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we, as readers of this gospel, what are we supposed to see here exactly in this passage? What are we supposed to make of this? Because right here, it seems like Jesus is popular, that Jesus likes him, or everybody likes Jesus. But how do we reconcile that with something that happens at the end of the week where the entire crowds turn against Jesus? That he's condemned in an illegal trial and put to death and essentially murdered in a shameful death and crucified on a cross. So in order to understand those events, is what we're looking at today, we have to understand this event. And so there are three things right here that we should understand about Jesus' conveyance on a donkey into Jerusalem. The first one is that Jesus used this, uses this moment to announce himself. Jesus announces himself. And so just as the prophet right here heralds the coming of God's perfect king, Jesus announces to all that he is him. He is he. He intentionally presents himself to the public eye. There's a quote from J.C. Ryle in your bulletin that sums it all up this occasion. He says, He came to Jerusalem to die, and he desired that all Jerusalem should know it. So he wanted everyone to see this. He wanted everyone to get involved and to understand what was going on. And the reference right here to the daughter of Jerusalem is not just talking about a single little girl, it's not talking about that, but the symbolic daughter, which is a reference to the whole generation of God's people, the citizens of Jerusalem, is to, and that the call is to them is to behold and to see what is happening right here. And so if you will, it's kind of like a, a won't you see? Won't you look in awe? As God ushers 
the salvation on Jesus and as he begins this week of suffering. And so the announcement was public, and Jesus was making the most of his public ministry. But if you are familiar with the rest of the Gospels and know how Jesus operated, it seems to go against how he would normally operate. Do you remember when he would heal people and he would say, don't tell anyone about this? We see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, when he first started his public ministry. There are certain places where they say he, tells, he heals people and he says, well, go tell people what God has done for you, but don't exactly tell people about me. But now, now is the time where Jesus wanted to make himself public. That he wanted to make it known that he was coming to the city of Jerusalem. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, will change their strategy along with Jesus. Whereas before, they would accuse him and confront him publicly when he was living a more private life. Now that he's entering Jerusalem and he's a public figure, they would confront him more subtly, if you will. They would no longer challenge him as openly or as directly. Just one chapter away in Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, we see a moment where he had a conflict with the Pharisees and he answered very wisely to their, their query. And we read right there that nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And so while Jesus was becoming public, the Pharisees' animosity toward him became more secret and became more cunning and became plotting. And so they would stop asking him questions directly. And after this, they started to fear his fame insomuch that at the end of the week, when they finally come with soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden, Matthew 26, verse 55, records Jesus telling them, Why have you, or have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He says, Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Every day I made myself a public figure in Jerusalem. And why are you coming to me at night? Because they started to fear the crowds. Because they were the ones who suddenly started operating in secret. And the reasons for all this we'll, we'll continue to, to read. But that's Jesus announcing himself. But we also see another thing going on right here is that Jesus is identifying himself. Jesus identifies himself. And so now that he's gone public, so to speak, what does he say about himself? What exactly, how exactly does he define himself? And so we should understand that he is presenting himself as king. He invokes Zechariah, which tells us, yes, your king is coming to you. And we see the sights, and we understand that this is a way a royal dignitary would enter into a city if he wanted to be close to his people. He wouldn't enter on a, on a white stallion or anything like that, but he would enter on a donkey. So it speaks of humility, which we'll talk about a little bit more, but it also speaks about his royalty, the fact that he is presenting himself as king. And so we see the, the scripture surrounding this event, and we, it's confirmed that, yes, okay, like we understand what Jesus is saying right here. He says, I am king. And so, if you will, this is like an interpretation. Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament passages for us. It's not just me standing up here saying this about the, the Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus. It's Jesus himself talking about the Old Testament passages and applying them to himself. 
And there are actually two different kinds of testimonies from the Word of God in the story, if you've noticed. There's this more explicit one from Zechariah, the chapter, or the, the verse 5, which you've already seen, say to the daughter of Jerusalem. But there's also something that the crowd is saying, and there's psalms of praise. If you'll see in verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so the, this crowd is invoking scripture, God-ordained scripture that God in his revelation has given to them to describe what is going on here. And they're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 through 27, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So we have in this passage, in the Psalms, this praise unto the one who brings salvation to his people. And we have very specific detail of how this is going to happen. It's going to happen through a sacrifice during a festival right here. And it's a song that people would have commonly sung in this Jewish culture and that they would continue to sing throughout the week. And yet they didn't know how accurate and how literal this was going to be fulfilled in their time. And so as Christians, we, we know that the, the Word of God is living and active and we can apply it to situations today in the present day, even though it was written thousands of years ago in some cases. And so this is a situation where we see the Word of God as active and living. That God is using His Word that He had written down hundreds of years before this to describe a passage in accuracy, to, to describe a situation in accuracy where He brings salvation to His people. This is God at work. And even though the crowd didn't seem to grasp the whole picture, we see that the Scriptures made this clear to us. And so our Lord's actions agree with the testimonies of the Scriptures. He accepts their praise. He accepts the fact that people are throwing cloaks onto the ground and cutting branches, palm branches, from the trees and lining the road with that so that he would have a great conveyance, almost like a, a modern, what modern day, what we call like a red carpet entrance. So he accepts this kind of worship rightfully because he accepts the royalty that God has given him, that he is king. But we see something else that is going on in this passage, that not only is Jesus announcing himself or and identifying himself, we see something that's kind of paradoxical, that Jesus is humbling himself in this situation. And at first appearance, we see, well, he's, he's rocketing himself into fame. He's accepting the praise of this people. And if you look at a lot of you know, children's storybook Bibles today, we see that he doesn't look like exactly like a necessarily humble figure. We see everyone singing his praises. We say, this was Jesus' heyday. He was at the peak of his game. But... This was an act of humility. And how do we know this? Zechariah's prophecy tells this. In verse 6, it says that it describes to us the way in which Jesus comes to his people. He comes humbly. He comes mounted on a donkey. So he's not a faraway figure 
He's not someone who's surrounded by retinue to protect his, you know, his every move and to look out and, and secret service and everything like that. He does not ride you know, on, a, on a very tall horse to be aloof, but rather he's approachable. And how many times do we idolize you know, celebrities in this world and different people that might have visited our city once? I remember a few years back, the comedian Will Ferrell visited Applebee's in Riverside, and everyone was like freaking out. Oh my gosh! Like, he, can you believe that he was here? It was, just a, it was just a small little thing. But people are obsessed with that kind of thing, and you know, we, we start to say to people, you know, Will Ferrell was here. You know, this guy was here. You know, we know him. We're, we're cool. And we start to describe our city by what's taken place in this city. And yet, we seem to forget that when Jesus comes, to Jerusalem, he comes very humbly and approachably. He's not a faraway celebrity. He's humble and approachable and personable. And in fact, we're told that he's humble. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, I'm going to turn there myself, we see the whole trajectory of our Lord's life was humility. It was a consistent downward curve, if you will, of humility. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the way in which Jesus arrives to Jerusalem is perfectly consistent with the huge trajectory of humility in his life. The two events that we might see in what we call Passion Week, which by the way comes from a Latin phrase to mean suffering week, the two events of his celebrated coming into Jerusalem and shameful dying on the cross were part of one plan. They weren't that, oh, you know what, things were great then for him, but you know they didn't work out so well. No, they were part of the overall trajectory of the Lord's life. And so this was an act of humility, him coming on a donkey. He was rode on a donkey, stooping over a donkey, into Jerusalem, and just remember that that's the same Lord who would be stooping under the weight of a wooden cross and being driven outside the gates of Jerusalem. But still, to any reader today, we might say, what happened? He was doing so well, and then it seemed to change by the end of the week. But what happened was that the crowd changed. The crowd changed their opinion of him, and they changed because they didn't know him truly. They didn't understand what was going on. If you look right here in verses 10 through 11, we see that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. And they were saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so first of all, the campaign right here, this entrance, it was a huge success. You know, they had a large number of people turning out, and a lot of people, you know, had really good seats. But yet, they did not understand what was going on. They did not genuinely believe. 
And even though they were saying, blessed is he who is the, the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord, they still said, oh, well, this is the prophet Jesus. He, he's, he's a prophet, you know. If you, he, he's from Nazareth of Galilee. And so we see, first of all, the, the way that people celebrate prophets, even though prophets weren't necessarily celebrated in their day. This was kind of a big carnival thing to celebrate the prophets. But we see that they didn't exactly see him as Christ the Lord, as the true Messiah. This was a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in, I think, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And so the disciples are saying, well, some say that you're a prophet, but we know the truth. We, we recognize, Peter says, you are the son of the living God. But these people were still stuck on, well, he's, he's a prophet. We understand that. We understand that there's some value in knowing that. And they even quoted the right scripture at the right time. They sung the praises of Jesus. And yet they didn't fully understand. And in fact, John chapter 12 gives us more insight into this situation. John chapter 12 verse 16 says, His disciples do not, did not understand these things at first, but when he, he was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Even his disciples didn't really get this coming into Jerusalem on a donkey thing. They didn't get that in real time. And in John chapter 12, verse 37, regarding the crowds, we hear that though he had done so many signs before them, i.e. raising Lazarus from the dead and then coming to Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling 500-year-old prophecy, though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him. And so when we read this kind of passage today, and we, we have our yearly celebration of Easter and Passion Week and you know, all the festivities that are about to come, we might think as Christians, and I think rightly so, man, if I only could have been there. If I only could have been there, you know, smelled the dust and, and the palm tree leaves that are freshly cut, and praised Jesus as he was coming into Jerusalem, what a sight that would have been to look at our Lord, God incarnate, coming into Jerusalem, and yet we right here in the pews, in our pew seats, looking at this occasion, have a greater advantage to understand and know our Lord than the crowd did in that day. Because right here you have the scriptures opened up before you, you have the whole story of redemption being told to you, and you have before your very eyes a picture of who Christ is to us today. And so when we see, behold, your king is coming to you, we can say that to ourselves today. Behold, your king is coming to you. Our king is coming to us, holding and carrying our salvation. And so understand that these people worshiping Jesus, they knew he was important, but they still did not know him. And so for us today, what's, what's our kind of takeaway today? Well, simply two points to consider on Palm Sunday. It's that Christ comes to you publicly and also that Christ comes to you humbly. Christ came to Jerusalem publicly. He wanted everyone to know. And he was hugely popular. He was, you know, if you will, like marketing himself as the Savior. But the reason why he was doing that was not just to, uh, so everyone knows my name, maybe buys my swag. No, was that so they would see 
his humility. Because humility on a megaphone is what Jesus was working toward. To let everyone know, I am here and I am dying for your sins in the most explicit terms possible. So that's Jesus coming to us publicly. And Jesus is more popular today than he was then. More people have heard about Jesus. More people have heard the name of Jesus. More people have known the story of Jesus. We have major network on television that are willing to play Easter movies about the resurrection of Christ and, and then the Ten Commandments, which is a Passover movie, and you know, on ABC. But we have networks trying to air these things at Easter, and we say, okay, people know who he is, and yet, do they know him personally? And for that fact, we should understand that Christ comes to us humbly. He's not aloof. He's not making a transaction up in heaven that maybe will get a trickle down a little bit. But no, he comes to us himself and he says, I offer you salvation. I'm offering you eternal life. I'm carrying my salvation into Jerusalem to accomplish it on the cross and pay for the penalty of your sins because you could not pay it yourself. I'm at hand. I'm coming to you. You're not coming to me, if you will. I'm coming to you to save you. And so that's what we should hear today through the Word of God. Do you realize what an advantage you have compared to the crowds then? And you don't even have to deal with the dust and the donkey smell today. We have our scriptures to identify us who the Son of God is and what He is doing today in our lives and how He approaches us with this grand offer of salvation. And so this Easter season recognize that this is the king, this is the self-same person who will die by the end of the week, on good, that will celebrate on Good Friday and commemorate. And so just remember that you can know Christ by the Word of God. You don't need to be there present. You don't need to wait an hour beforehand to find good seats. You can know Him by, your, by His Word, and you can trust in Him by faith to know that you have received the gift of salvation that he offers. So let's consider that as we pray. Father, we are thankful again for this passage. Lord, would you have us recognize the significance of Christ's coming to Jerusalem, carrying our salvation in his hands, conveyed on a donkey, lowly and approachable, Lord, I ask that, Lord, even as he was made famous in Jerusalem today, that he would be famous in our lives. But not because we've just simply heard of him, not simply because maybe we've read books about him or watched movies about him, but because we know him personally. And Lord, we ask for anyone here today that does not know him, that, Lord, you would reach out to them. And Lord, you would reveal yourself to them and you would help them to understand who you are and what you've done for them on their behalf. And so, Father, again, we, we thank you and we commemorate you during this week. In Jesus' name, amen.